You're listening to the Future Tech Health Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Until I reached age 40, I never realized the obvious, that we all have medical issues, or we at least have a family member or close relation that had, has, or will have them in the future. Medicine and biological systems are the final frontier. Until we've conquered death, figured out how life began, cured cancer, and understood our purpose in the universe, there's a heck of a lot to talk about when it comes to our health. Future Tech Health means I'll be covering futuristic topics that are actually already in clinical trials or even starting to appear on shelves or by prescription or available for your own use. We dive deep into stem cells, CRISPR-Cas9, the science of sleep, epigenetics, medical testing, cancer, ketogenic diets, stem cells, aging, regenerative medicine, and more. My goal for you, the listener, is to learn from these podcasts. You may very well learn something that may change the course of your life for the better, steer you towards a new career, or give you insight into addressing a serious medical problem. Remember, however, this podcast and its content is informational in nature only. No medical, tax, legal, financial, or psychological advice is being given. If you enjoy the podcast, please listen, subscribe, like, and share it with friends. Thank you. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Future Tech and Future Tech Podcast, Future Tech Health Podcast. Uh, my guest today is Martin Guerra. He is an associate professor at Leiden University. We're going to be talking about his research into uh, clinical metabolomics and some other stuff he does. So, Martin, thank you for coming. Oh, welcome. I appreciate it. Yeah, it sounds a little bit technical what you work on. So, can you break it down? Basically, what what's the focus of your research? It actually is, and uh, that's a question many people ask. Um, first, well, what is metabolomics? What are metabolites? Metabolites are small molecules. There is tens of thousands of them in the human body, active ones, inactive ones, storage components, structural components. And metabolomics actually tries to get an overview of all of them and their interconnectivity and how they are interwined uh, and uh, steer and take part in biochemical processes. Obviously, with this knowledge, we hope to get a deeper understanding of human physiology and subsequently also about pathophysiological processes like uh, specific diseases, which on the long run should help us deciphering novel treatment opportunities as well as advanced um, diagnostic approaches for many diseases where early detection is crucial. Just think about lung cancer or cancer in general uh, or diseases where we just don't know at all what is happening, like in amyotrophic lateral sclerosis and alike. And in my group, okay, we so use uh, future tech to, to carry out these analyses. So what um, is your focus on studying normal processes in the human body and what the metabol metabolites are? Or are you focused on studying certain diseases and what those metabolites are? What is your focus? Because it sounds like, you know, with tens of thousands of compounds, you can't look at everything, obviously. That's a very excellent point. And I think when metabolomics started, everybody was a bit too enthusiastic and a bit, well, had too high hopes, so to say, and we thought we could cover it all before we realized it's so many compounds. We cannot cover them all. So what is happening at the moment is that actually a lot of researchers around the world are taking apart the, the active ones from the non-active ones. So activity metabolomics, so where you profile the active metabolites, which are 
so to say, the salt and the soup, they are in the focus and they're also in the focus of my group. So it does not really separate into physiology and disease, but it more separates into active components versus inactive components. When is um, something called a precursor versus a metabolite? Because it, you know, like for certain processes in the body, I would guess there's not just one level of metabolites. Like you know, you you take in something and you uh, you know chemically change it. So you you yeah. had one thing and now you change it. Now you have a metabolite of that. But maybe that's an input for the next step in the cycle, the next step, and the next step. So how do you differentiate that? Usually there's different levels of, of chemical modification, and these modifications can be mapped and analyzed. And on basis of these, uh, these analyses, you can trace back what was first and what came later. And you can also have a look at the, at the key players within these processes. And well, basically, when something leaves your body to, uh, through, the, through urine or the feces, then obviously, you know, it, uh, it uh, how to say, uh, the story ended, so to say, for this metabolite. So is a metabolite only when it finally is excreted from your body? I mean, an excretion, it sounds like, can be through your breath. You know, carbon dioxide, I guess you could consider an end-stage metabolite, right? And yeah, exactly. Yeah, correct. Sweat. Yes, sweats, uh, urine, feces, uh, whatever is in there in small molecule content. You you know, creatinine, um, glucose, uh, glucuronic acid, lactic acid, pyruvate. Yeah, there's thousands, tens of thousands of them. So what's an example? By definition, a a metabolite would be a product of an enzymatic reaction. So okay, uh, Okay. yeah, that would be one of the basic. Definition. What's an example of a, of a really fascinating pathway in the body and you know metabolites uh, metabolites that you've discovered or researched you know that you want to talk about any specifics? I I think what for me personally what was a change in my career was when I when I visited the group of Charlie Sarhan at Harvard Medical School and he's looking at the metabolites of polyunsaturated fatty acids. You know them as the fish oils, and, you know, there's a big debate about it, whether they are really beneficial or they are not really beneficial. Um, and Charlie Zerhan basically discovered a couple of metabolites of these unsaturated fatty acids, which become metabolized or modified within our body, and then they change in function and they become much more biologically active. And that founded the field of resolution um, physiology. So the understanding how inflammation in the body is actually actively turned off. And I find this a very fascinating field where we also are uh, yeah, engaged in many different projects. So earlier on when you said a metabolite is either active or inactive, you mean biologically active? Yeah. Okay. So um, will people uh, excrete, by the time he, someone's ready to excrete something, you know, again, through breath or urine or whatever, is the metabolite always inactive, or do people excrete active metabolites too? Um, yeah, <laughs> I think that, I guess that that's a very individual uh, problem or case for for each and every single metabolite. See, if 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 something is extremely active in your body, 
it usually undergoes a very rapid turnover. So it is made uh, at the site of the action where it's needed, but it immediately is also metabolized further into an inactive form. Otherwise, uh, that the reaction of your body would be too tremendous and it would overwhelm the whole system. An example for such a metabolite is leukotriene B4, with it, which is a very strong chemokine attracting white blood cells to the, to, the, uh, to the site of inflammation. You need it because you need the white blood cells to, to, to attack intruders like bacteria or, you know, uh, other uh, organisms to clean it up. But if this production would continue and this metabolite would be very stable and linger around in your system, everything would get out of control. So at the very same moment, this very active metabolite is being further transformed into, in this case, 20-hydroxy leukotriene before, which is way less active. So it's a very, uh, um, yeah, it's, it's, you can see it like interwinded gears, which work extremely nicely together with each other. And there's a very specific fine tuning uh, occurring in the body. And this is a, well, this is also very fascinating if you think about it like this. Yeah, so I, I was thinking of metabolites just as, um, you know, you eat food or you drink something and then you produce metabolites and it's used for energy production. But, you know, what are, I don't know, I know you can't define them all, but what are a lot of the major uses of metabolites in the body? Oh, <laughs> well, that's, uh, I mean, we, we, we also say that uh, the metabolome, so the entity of all metabolites, is the closest link to the phenotype. So basically, the metabolome largely defines a phenotype. So in this way, it, the metabol, metabolome also defines our physiology and can also define or cause diseases. I mean, not for nothing, we have the disease called metabolic syndrome, which basically is metabolism getting out of control by too much food intake, too much sugars, too much fat. But there's many, many processes where metabolites play a crucial role for me personally, well, what I think is most interesting is the signaling function, so that you see that metabolites basically have bioactivity within the body, and they have a plethora of um, different functions. And these functions are tissue-specific or cell-specific. So the levels uh, of control and the levels of interwined processes, well, that's close to a miracle, you can say, if you if you do research in that field. Yeah, it's amazingly complex. Hmm. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's so really amazingly complex. Can you give me a couple of anecdotes? What are a few things that you've worked on that amazed you, that surprised you, and you, know, you really enjoyed discovering you know, over the past six months or year or several years? Yeah, I think what, what we are just working on uh, at the moment, and we have a study which has been submitted to a journal, and it's in revision, I cannot, the name details uh, uh, about it out of this uh, reason. But when I did my PhD, I was searching, uh, researching uh, the distal cholesterol biosynthesis, so the steps, the last steps in which cholesterol, a very important metabolite, which, you, which everybody knows actually, but no one realizes that we have approximately 300 grams of it in our body, and it's tremendously important for the liquidity of our biomembranes and the function of our cells. And I was researching this last pathway in the cascade to make uh, cholesterol. And 10 years ago, when I wrote down my thesis, my PhD thesis, 
I was always thinking to myself, we always see this pathway of, of cholesterol biosynthesis just as a mere production of cholesterol. And everybody thinks that cholesterol is kind of a bad metabolite because you have high cholesterol and we link this to this is bad for you. And I always ask myself, so is there not more behind uh, what are the activities of these other metabolites? Because I could not believe that uh, that all these steps occur just to make one final product. I always thought that there is much more about these other metabolites in the cascade. And now 10 years later, I mean, one story we just published in Nature, um, actually some colleagues of us, but we're co-authors on this manuscript, we published in Nature showing that if you inhibit this distal cholesterol biosynthesis at a specific point, you can f uh, um, enhance the remyelination of oligodendrocytes, that cells which are very important in diseases like multiple sclerosis. And we now have another study where we can show that certain precursors of cholesterol have very important biological functions. And if you interfere at the right stages in this pathway, and you actually cause the accumulation of this bioactive metabolite, you can change disease processes. And well, this for me personally is a very nice anecdote because 10 years ago, I already kind of had it in the, in the back of my head. Something is going on here, but I couldn't really name it. And it took me kind of 10 years to, to, to round up the story, if you want to say so. It's interesting. It's so, it's so complicated. Let's say, you know, like the, people take supplements, let's say for health, you know, yeah. and then it makes me wonder at what stage of a chemical pathway is the supplement they're taking affecting that pathway? You know, what if, um, I don't know, you were tired and you wanted to take an enzyme to help your energy production. And let's say there's yeah. like, you know, 10 steps in that pathway and you're taking yeah. an enzyme that is step two, you know, how would it be different if you took one that's at step four or five or eight or you took yeah, multiple ones. Yeah. What would it do to the pathway? And so I guess, <laughs> I guess, I guess there's such we a don't really know too much about this. Yeah, and and the problem wow. is also that the microbiome. What if you could learn about the ketogenic diet and metabolic therapy from the world's top scientists, physicians, and influencers in a four-day experience, co-hosted by Dr. Dominic D'Agostino, who's been on the Tim Ferriss podcast in Los Angeles, California, January 31st. To February 3rd, 2019. If you want to hear about the latest scientific evidence on nutrition and metabolism and its potential to treat disease, increase longevity, improve athletic performance, and yes, help with weight loss, Metabolic Health Summit is for you. Some of the speakers include Dominic D'Agostino, PhD, Mark Sisson, Suzanne Ryan of Keto Karma, Thomas Seyfried, uh, who studies metabolism and cancer, Aubrey Marcus, Georgia Ede, MD, Matt and Mega of Keto Connect, and many, many more speakers. At this conference, we're going to dive into the research and learn how to apply it during real-world applications with four days of presentations. There'll be nightly receptions with keto-friendly drinks and appetizers. There'll be a scientific poster session that includes the latest research on ketosis, human optimization, and more. And there'll be new innovative products at the Metabolic Health Summit Keto Expo. You get to network with some of the world's most brilliant minds at the Metabolic Health Summit VIP Mixer and Gala Dinner. For physicians, this activity is jointly provided by Cedars-Sinai Medical Center and the Metabolic Health Initiative, 
Cedars-Sinai is accredited by ACCME to provide continu continuing medical education for physicians. Earn up to 21 and a half AMA PRA Category 1 credits by attending. If you're a registered dietitian, this event has received prior approval by the Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics for 18 CPEs. Visit metabolichealthsummit.com or click on the banner and get your tickets before they're gone because it's coming soon. Remember, it's in Los Angeles, California, January 31st to February 3rd, 2019. We are only weeks away. This is a must-not-miss seminar. Biome is also in between in many cases. And I think this is another level of complexity which we just start to understand at present. That, well, basically something which you ingest can be metabolized by your microbiome. And it can become a totally different metabolite also correlating with your actual microbiome, so with the bacterial species who are in your guts and are in, like, like in your guts and my guts. So this is very individual. And this can tremendously affect how food is metabolized within the guts and what bioactive metabolites are actually produced by the microbiome. And then, you know, it's, you see there it links again. And there again, we need this technology and we need to take apart the active ones from the inactive ones to understand how can we, or which are the juicy ones, so to say, so which are the ones we want to accumulate in the body, and then find the right tweaks to actually do that. I wonder if anyone takes, in, takes all this into account when they're you know, looking to design drugs or they just look for the, uh, the end stage result. Do you think... This is just starting, actually. I, this... <laughs> To, to take metabolomics into drug research is, is just a field which is just at the moment really skyrocketing. So it took, in my experience, it took big pharma a little bit. So, you know, there are usually the big pharma is rather conservative. Let's be frank about it. And they like to pick major technology. And metabolomics soared over the years, you know, it, it became major. And now it also is finding its, its entry into the big pharma companies. So they are really uh, picking it up at the moment. Yeah, it sounds like there's a lot more room for improvement. I mean, let's say like, uh, you know, I was, I don't know, I'll pick uh, Viagra. You know, I don't know what that pathway is of, you know, sexual excitement, but you know, yeah. there's X number of steps and they just chose that one step. And there's probably room in there to really tweak the process by looking at all the other steps and seeing what, uh, you know, adding this or adding that or suppressing this would do. And it makes it yeah. really complicated. It's crazy. <laughs> it is. And, and also the off-target effects, you know. I mean, you take one drug, but we do not know all the effects it has. An example is paracetamol. Um, oh, what is the, wait a second. Uh, acetaminophen. That's, the, that's how you guys call it in the U.S. Acetaminophen. We don't. We right. still don't know after this stuff is on the market for 50 years. We still don't exactly know how it works. And the same is, really? Uh, yeah, really. <laughs> there is no 100% clear mechanism how acetaminophen is well alleviating uh, pain. The same counts for uh, aspirin. There is over the years there have been so many reports about other effects and new effects and side effects of aspirin and a different processes interacting with. Uh, so, you know, you can imagine that for many, many drugs we already have registered. There's also interest in looking at these drugs, 
one by one and seeing if you might not be able to decipher other diseases where you could use it for based on the knowledge how it interacts with the metabolome. And I think you know, this weird is an upcoming that, market. Yeah, you know what's odd is that, you know, it, it, it seems like it would just be too slow for a big farmer, for instance, to look at one compound after another after another because there's all these interactions too. It just, it makes you wonder how medicine can work at all given the complexity, you know? Yeah. <laughs> I, yeah, this, um, yeah, well, that's a different, I mean, that's maybe the flip side of it if you want to say so. Because you see, we we gain more and more knowledge, but this also makes processes more and more complex. And with one answer come three questions. And yeah. I think there you have to be very careful uh, to which point you go because you can easily get lost in these details and get lost in the complexity and then in the end you don't produce any new drugs anymore anyways because you just come up with more uh, demands and more questions so that's a good point yeah you have to be careful there well i guess one good thing is if you look at the typical person you know that there are hundreds of different reactions going on or maybe thousands or tens of thousands all kinds of metabolites being produced at once and they don't seem to be interacting in a bad way because the person lives and thrives, you know, at least for yeah. its lifespan. So it seems like, I guess, a good step would be looking at the human body and knowing, all right, at least it has figured out the rules where all these things can coexist peacefully. So I don't know, to try to do that in a lab just on your own, it seems like the human body itself, you know, you don't want to experiment on people, obviously, without uh, without knowing what's going on. But it just seems like a living, I guess, like a living creature, like a, a lab rat. That's why they're such a powerful vehicle yeah. to figure out what will work and what won't, because they have this whole rule book in the background running where things tend, things seem to work. You know, but for us as as scientists, or for you as a scientist, it's it's really hard to figure out all the factors that would go into making a pathway work or not, or influencing it. It's it, you know what I'm saying. It's a I understand, I'm trying to describe but that's, it, but... unfortunately, you know, this is also the the reason why we still need all these lab rats, so to say, all these test animals, because it's too complex to mimic it in a petri dish. Mm. I mean, you know, also there, there is stupid things done with uh, with laboratory animals, which should be avoided at all costs. But on the other hand, you cannot just give something to a human being. You need to test it in a mouse or a rat. Because we cannot mimic the complexity of all of this within one single petri dish, we're not, you know, we're not yeah. at this level. And the other thing I think is that the artificial intelligence and neural network computing and and these type of of novel approaches will uh, revolutionize uh, the field of metabolomics. Putting this, what you just uh, brought up, putting this into context. So where is the equilibrium? between all of these different players and how are they exactly uh, working together and what happens if I tweak uh, metabolite B, what happens to the whole system in a dynamic way. And I think only with, with artificial intelligence we can get a full picture of this because it is it is already now yeah. at the stage where we are. It is very hard to grasp for us. Hmm. Is there a particular pathway that is like the, uh, you know, the the one that's the most understood by science? Is there any example of the one the, that the, the we think is well understood? Cycle. Yeah, citric acid cycle, I would say. Is that the Krebs, Krebs cycle, cycle, the citric acid yeah, the cycle? Krebs cycle? Yeah, Krebs cycle. 
Can can you just give a few uh, details about it? You know, like how many steps, how many intermediary or intermediate things are produced? Any numbers on it? Uh, well, it's it's our central um, uh, pathway for energy production. So um, all the ATP molecules, which is basically the fuel of our cells, is mainly produced within the Krebs cycle. Um, it, it burns glucose, um, and by this we breathe. Uh, we uh, excrete uh, CO2, and we make energy to 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 well to wrap it up. Um, now the steps. I would have to think. Right, um, but it's approximately uh, by how many heart. Steps I would say it's maybe ten steps. Um, the interesting things is is that that it also plays a major role within in cancer. Uh, many people will know um, the Warburg effect, which was found by the uh, Austrian physician uh, Warburg somewhere in the uh, 20th century, 1910 or something, and he found out that there is well this paradox that cancer starts to ferment basically glucose. So you produce a lot of lactate, and with this, you produce much less energy per molecule of fuel. If you would otherwise go through the whole Krebs cycle, you could produce much more energy for one molecule of glucose. Um, and he found this paradox because, you know, cancer cells, they grow much faster, so they need a lot of, of energy. So the, the paradox question is, why do cancer cells uh, switch in their um, metabolism to a fermentive process. Why do they not use the entire citrate or, or Krebs cycle anymore? Um, there's a lot of papers and studies about this, and uh, um, yeah, a lot of uh, research has been put into this, and it is still one of the very, very uh, central cycles within cancer, and uh, I think we, we, we start to understand more and more how this is put together. But, you know, this is only in total, maybe if you take glycolysis and the citric acid cycle together, there's maybe 10 steps or something. I would, I don't know it now by heart. Uh, and this is already very complex, you know, to measure all the different intermediates, to make heads and tails from where does stuff come from, from where does a metabolite enter it. There is more than one entry into these cycles. Uh, trace back where does it come from. But the interesting thing then, if you do this type of research and you look at, and even if you look only at these, this, this snapshot, this very focused small area of the entire metabolism, you can see that when you profile different cancers, that they are all different metabolically. So it's a very individualized process, this metabolic process. And on one hand, this is of course a problem because one cancer is not like another cancer. But on the other hand, it kind of proves that we need personalized therapy for cancer. And it gives us the chance to, in a very specific way, possibly, you know, inter, uh, interfere in, in a very individual way with different types of cancer and within different individuals. I think this is also where we're going with respect. Yeah, I think it's probably a very good thing that cancers don't uh, use the Krebs cycle in the traditional way, because now there's possibly a way to target them and to cut them off from their energy production. I wouldn't say that, because on the other hand, uh, um, uh, no, I, I have to, I'm not sure if I recall it by heart correctly, but uh, I think I remember that I read some papers that when you normalize it again, the malignancy goes down. Huh. So normalizing metabolism might actually also be an entry into lower malignancy. 
So that's a bit of the chicken right. and the egg question, right? Yeah, right. Can that's I, true. Can, can I change the chicken when I change the eggs? Or in other words, if I normalize metabolism, can I normalize my cell or my cell's behavior? Or is it the other way around that the disturbed behavior of the cell causes the disturbed metabolism? But I think there is no clear answer to this yet. But this is a very uh, active field of research as well. Yes, I know we're close to being out of time. So what what are you working on now and over the next six months or a year? Let's talk about that and then we'll finish up. Um, well, yeah, resolution of inflammation is still a hot topic. Um, we're pursuing uh, novel targets um, to activate the resolution of inflammation. Um, we're doing that or trying to decipher those by uh, using our metabolomics and lipidomics techniques. Um, cancer metabolism is also an active field where we have a lot of collaborations. Um, personalized uh, medicine is coming up on the horizon as well. And one bigger thing where we're also active in, and this is also a bit to wrap up where the, the field at the moment is, we still need to set a good baseline for human physiology. So for the many of the metabolites we can measure, we don't know what are the actual physiological range. And there we are engaging in a couple of um, uh, collaborations with many colleagues to, to accomplish this and to give good numbers for the physiological ranges of our metabolism and our metabolites. When you say physiological ranges, do you mean the concentrations or the amount of certain yeah, metabolites? Exactly, or? exactly. Uh, there is for many of okay, those, gotcha. we don't have a clear-cut answer. So what is the range we can expect is one metabolite in. Hmm, gotcha. Okay. Well, just like when you take a blood test and you're, you know, whatever marker is within a certain range. Exactly. You know, I guess we've, so we've established supposedly that these ranges are healthy or not healthy. And but Yeah. Yeah. And then we have, you have for glucose or, you know, for a couple of more. But now we're talking about hundreds to thousands of these uh, parameters where we need to define the physiological range. Gotcha. Hmm. Oh, I guess to say you have a lot of work ahead of you is uh, is an understatement, but it sounds like really fascinating it stuff, and uh, I can see why you work on it. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, very good. Well, Martin, what's what's a good way for folks to get in contact, you know, for collaboration or ideas or questions in case they want to reach you? I think with my last name, you will always find me on the Internet. There's only a couple with that name in the world, so... <laughs> If you just Google me, you'll find me and you have my email address and just drop me. Okay. Well, very good. Well, Martin, I appreciate you taking the time and thank you for coming. Yeah, I appreciate it too and uh, thanks for the invite. You're listening to the Future Tech Health Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Until I reached age 40, I never realized the obvious, that we all have medical issues or we at least have a family member or close relation that had, has, or will have them in the future. Medicine and biological systems are the final frontier. Until we've conquered death, figured out how life began, cured cancer, and understood our purpose in the universe, there's a heck of a lot to talk about when it comes to our health. Future Tech Health means I'll be covering futuristic topics that are actually already in clinical trials, or even starting to appear on shelves, or by prescription, or available for your own use. We dive deep into stem cells, CRISPR-Cas9, the science of sleep, epigenetics, medical testing, cancer, ketogenic diets, stem cells, aging, regenerative medicine, and more. My goal for you, the listener, is to learn from these podcasts. 
You may very well learn something that may change the course of your life for the better, steer you towards a new career, or give you insight into addressing a serious medical problem. Remember, however, this podcast and its content is informational in nature only. No medical, tax, legal, financial, or psychological advice is being given. If you enjoy the podcast, please listen, subscribe, like, and share it with friends. Thank you.